thinks. Those idiots, the slobs out there. Oh, boy. What a drag. Yeah, okay, Russ. Yeah, I suppose all the slobs were already out there listening. Yeah. Boy, there's no more. What a collection of rat thinks. Yeah, hey, Russ. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. Enough to see. Good evening, radio listeners and fans, fans everywhere. It's certainly a pleasure to be with you again on this knee, this evening, uh, this night. <laughs> it's uh, delightful to see you all out there, your bright and shiny faces, all of you waiting there on the edge of your seats for the truth, all of you waiting there on the edge of your seats for the truth. It's certainly delightful, ladies and gentlemen and friends of the radio world. Out there in the great, out beyond, out there in radio listener land, and we here in studio land salute you. We salute you and extend the hand in abject friendship to you. So we'll gather on, friends. It's good to see you. Hi, George. And now for my first selection, I'm going to play for the whole gang out there in Babylon who are enjoying a pajama party. And oh, what a pajama party they're having. Hi, gang. Hi. Boy, they sure named your town right, didn't they, Babylon? Yes, sir. Uh, and for the whole crowd up in Connecticut, up there in Gomorrah, we're going to do another little piece of music all together now. Let's go. Oh, I'm the fantastic word out there on the field. And the football players 
Very exciting. Whew. Gee, I'm sorry we didn't. I'm, I'm sorry that I have to. Uh, you're such a letdown, you know. I'm sorry that we couldn't bring you the rest of that football game. I understand that later on, after the network cut off, something happened that's just incredible. You'll be reading about it. If they dare to print the truth. If they've got the guts to come out and tell on the sport page what really happened that afternoon. What really happened when the spectators began streaming from the stands, taking their cue from the pickleball queen as she slowly but surely undulating sinuously to the sound of the tom-toms being played by that clean-limbed band out there. As she slowly but surely began to get to their cue, they filed from the stands. And the greatest football game in the history of Christendom began to take place. 74,000 people and the pickleball queen. One of the greatest sporting events ever seen in the history of American sporting animals. What's going to happen next season? You, you don't want to hear anymore. Well, that's probably just as well. Keep your dreams. Keep them all there. I don't know whether I ought to tell some jokes tonight or what. Would you like me to do my famous tap dance? Or do you want me to tell you my famous... Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I think I may do that. I think I may do that. Do you want to hear a little more about that? Oh, oh, you want to hear about... Oh, all right, ladies and gentlemen. All right, bring it up there. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are privileged to witness one of the greatest hockey games in the history of the ice rink arena. Yes, this is a thrilling sport, ladies and gentlemen. And those of you who have never seen ice hockey, you have never seen real sport, real mayhem, real action, every minute, every second of the game. And now the Red Wings are skating out of the ice, and the Chicago Blackhawks are coming out now. The goalie is carrying a large club, and it looks like the yes, the forwards are now mixing it up. Here comes. 
comes the defense medal, the Red Wings in. My God, this is the game. There goes one down, there's another one. Here comes, you can hear in the background the sound of the sirens coming closer and closer. There are over 400 spectators now mixing it up back of the press box. I'll be back in just a minute while I get this slob behind me right in the mouth. I'll be back in just 60 seconds. want to hear any more impressions of the American sporting scene, do you? <laughs> yes, well, I figure we'll all have a lot to answer for. And one of the things I'll have to answer for is a dismal quarter season spent doing the play-by-play of, a, an, of an improbable ball team. You won't believe it. Of an improbable ball team named the Toledo Mud Hens. Ladies and gentlemen, we're out here in Wakefield, where the Toledo Mud Hens are taking on the rough, tough, rock'em, sock'em mine from Fort Wayne. The smoke is swirling in from the stockyard, back of the Erie track. The temperature now stands at 142 degrees. The visibility is 7 feet. And it's going to be an exciting football game. With a big crowd out here tonight, folks, there are over 722 paying customers. And we have a large crowd of Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and PTA ladies, which brings our crowd to well over 800. It's going to be an exciting game tonight. And here they come out on the field. The Toledo Mud Hens are charging. Oh, there we go. <laughs> you don't want to hear that, do you? Do you want? Do you want to hear me? Do you want to? Hear, all, right, all right, one more. We'll bring up here. Here, here we go. Come on, let's go all together. All right, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here at the Indianapolis Speedway, beginning the 723rd consecutive running of the Great 500 Mile Classic. There are 33 beautifully tuned machines all lined up down there in 11 rows. Reach, ready for the takeoff. There goes the lead pace car, beginning to take off down the track, and it looks like in just a few moments. Second running of the great 500 mile classic from Indianapolis Speedway in Indianapolis, Indiana. One of the great classics of American sporting. There goes the lead car. What's the matter? It must be because it's Friday. <laughs> Whew, speaking of trouble, this is WOR AM and FM New York. <sighs> I feel like a tap dancer on the Ed Sullivan Show. Whew, after 45 ovations, <sighs> reprisals. Is that what they do to a tap dancer? It isn't exactly what they should do to him. <laughs> And uh, we're here. Let's see. We better get rid of the commercial here because we've got serious things to do here. Instead of speaking of, uh, of sporting events, I, I really shouldn't uh, bring this up at this time. But uh, 
tremendous sporting event here in WOR at 3 o'clock. WOR invites you on Sunday to hear the 12th broadcast of the season by the New York Philharmonic. Under Amerigo Marino, one of the two musicians selected to conduct the orchestra under the American Conductors Project. Amerigo Marino, under the American Conductors Project. So, uh, <laughs> we'll be here. <laughs> hey, George, you know, sometimes I feel like my knee is getting the best of me. Oh, that's uh, Sunday. They're going to play Rossini, Sonata Number no. 3 in C Major, Hindemith's Symphonia Serena, and Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major. And the special guest star will be Freddie Martin. And uh, it's very good. He plays the timpani, the piano, and a lot of things. Sings. And uh, we'll be here until, <laughs> until the important stuff happens. Speaking of the important stuff, and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, things of that nature, here we have just a few minutes... We better get with it. We have with us tonight the pottery of all nations. And if you are getting desperate, Dad, and uh, desperate in the way of uh, gift things, and there are many of us who are, I would like to highly recommend the visit to pottery of all nations. It is, uh, well, uh, pottery of all nations is literally the name, and that's what it means. A tremendous collection of imported stuff from all over the world. A lot of imported stuff that, well, we just don't even talk about on the radio, but they've got a lot of wonderful things down there. And this is on Sheridan Square. And they're open Saturday, and they'll be open very late Saturday. So if you are coming to New York to make the Christmas shopping scene, be sure to visit the Pottery of All Nations. Beautiful stuff, and it's from all over the world at prices that you can't believe. This is Sheridan Square. There's one at 64th and Lexington on the Upper East Side, and one in Jersey at Route 4 in Paramus. And uh, a lot of your problems will be taken care of there, as well as a lot of your cash, which can be problems. All right, okay. That's it. That's, I'm not going any further. I will continue here. Don't worry. Uh, any sport fans out there want to hear my famous impressions of other American sporting events? All right. Uh, how about this one? All right. Uh, here, let's go again. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here at Madison Square Garden, where two of the greatest professional basketball teams in the country are now squaring off for the second half of their epic ball game to determine the professional championship of the professional basketball world. The score now stands at 722 to 698, and these two ball teams are fighting to the mail all the way down to the wire. There isn't a ball player on this team. Here they come out there. The Boston Celtics are knocking the others. Not a ball player on this team that is less than 23 feet high. The New York Rangers, fielding a hockey team last season, have now decided to give that game up and go into basketball. They have a ball team that averages over 27 feet in height. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a sport of clean American boys. Every one of them little boys and girls just like the kids you... Uh-oh. Yes, indeed. You want to hear more about that? I can uh, do some. You want to hear some more of those? I do a fantastic impression of uh, of professional football, in case you're interested in that one. You want to hear that one? All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here at Fairfield, better known as Wrigley Field in Chicago, where the Chicago Bears, the Western Division champions of the National Football League, take on the New York Giants in their epic battle. Led by Y.A. Tittle, known for his beautiful passing and his magnificent skill in handling a ball club, which from time to time has been difficult to handle. Y.A. Tittle is lined up down there now in his famous T-formation crouch. The Chicago Bears, famed as a defensive ball team, are here today to show why they won. 
Western Division Championship, allowing an average of less than seven points per game per opponent. Yes, this is a rock'em, sock'em, tough ball game. Ladies and gentlemen, today already there have been over four fractured skulls in the first half. The game is progressing nicely. The fans are rioting nicely. In fact, right out there in the field, over the scoreboard now, we can see the nightsticks of the finest of Chicago being swung with that bird that the Chicago Cops are famous for. exciting sporting life here. What's the matter? That's this kind of stuff makes you sweat just to think. You know, speaking of uh, the sporting life, <clears throat> this is Friday night. You can tell it, can't you? Hello, Test. Hello. 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 You still out there? Friends of the radio audience? <laughs> Fellow sufferers? <laughs> ah, George. This is easy. Well, the sporting scene, of course, gets more interesting wherever you go. And all over the world, sport takes a uh, different uh, slant, so to speak. It gets different every place you go. For example, we have here a little thing that might be of interest to you. Radio Tokyo brings you a special radio broadcast from Reuters. Employees at City Hall in Wakayama have been warned under threat of dismissal to keep their pants on during working hours. We repeat, employees at City Hall in Wakayama are now hereby warned from government warning under threat of dismissal keep pants on during working hours. The employees in City Hall there have also been banned from slipping out for coffee and from playing mahjong during office hours. Mayor Zonichi Takaganai issued 10 articles of discipline calling for proper attire, punctuality as befitting all good Japanese bureaucrats, no coffee or tea breaks, no mahjong, and name tags for all employees except the mayor and high officials. Once again, democracy marches on in Japan. <laughs> I kind of like the idea. You know, I think that's going a little too far, this business of no pants. Not allowing the guys to, you know, I mean, that's... <laughs> so obviously sport takes a different... Uh, Attack in uh, these uh, other countries, and and uh, to to kind of uh, show you that uh, for those of you who are wondering how the world is doing out there, since it is very difficult to get actual news of the world. I mean, you get a lot of stuff that politicians are saying and various guys are making speeches about. But what what's happening? I mean, how how are things going? I really seriously, friends, neighbors, how are things going? Let's 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 look across the sea, hands across the sea to the land of Richard the Lionhearted, the land of Winston Churchill, and uh, <clears throat> the land of some of the worst movies you ever saw. Let's reach hands across the sea now, and once again, we visit... Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, the British Broadcasting Corporation, in conjunction with the Associated Press, brings you once again... For the Imperial Majesty, 
And for those colonials and those British subjects overseas, a salute to England and English attitudes and Englishmen everywhere. We shall fight them from the hedgerows. We'll fight them from the fields. We'll fight them with blood, sweat, and tears. I have their lowest meaning, thank God. Tonight, it's religious news from here, there, and everywhere throughout the length and breadth of this, this, this wonderful little island, Portsmouth, England. The very Reverend E.N. Portergoff, provost of Portsmouth Anglican Cathedral, said today he was very proud of his church's Christmas mural, which features human embryos, half-naked girls, and wrestling posters. Yes, the Reverend Ian Portergoff, provost of Portsmouth Anglican Cathedral, said, This mural is meant to make people think. And indeed it will, Reverend. And now we move to Little Rumford, England. Little Rumford by the sea. Tattoo artist Victor Shipton. For those of you who believe that the British youth are beginning to go the way of those, those terrible American youths, we would like to give you one little word of encouragement tonight. Tattoo artist Victor Shipton said today teenagers are lining up outside his shop to get special Christmas tattoos. There is a rush for religious subjects just now, Shipton said. The crucifixion is probably the most popular. One of his customers, Brian Hargraves, 16, and an Englishman of the car, said he got his Christmas tattoo, and we quote young Brian tonight, to help me think about religion more often. And so the British Broadcasting Corporation in its third programming services salutes young Brian Hargraves as a true religious Briton. By George, young Brian, we salute thee as an Englishman. And so tonight the British Broadcasting Corporation concludes its special salute to England and Englishmen, whatever they might be. interesting program of Lady Mental, 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 Mental Hargrave, who reports with her description of runic ruins in the Upper Lands and District. All right. All right. Do you, do you, uh, you know, that, that, uh, uh, my hand is extended to that kid. <laughs> That guy with the tattoo. Should I really tell you tonight about my experience with the tattoo artist and about the time I made the big plunge or came so close to making the big plunge that even now, even now, believe me, Ed, my ears sweat when I think about it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, have, have any of you ever out there... And this is something probably most women will never quite understand, but have any of you out there ever had the vague, just the vague, you know, little sneaking, vague desire to get something printed on your epidermis? Huh? Never? Come on, don't give me that jazz. What are you talking about? That is not true. No, 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 nothing so clear that you can put it down and say, yes, I remember one Wednesday. In the fall of 1957, I decided, yes, perhaps it would be nice to have an anchor on the back of my head. No, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not discussing that specific moment. Have you ever had the vague... I, I wonder, do women understand this? They do. 
Oh, come on, that's not true. I can't believe that women understand the... Very few women, as far as I know, ever get tattooed. Very few. And yet a lot of men get tattooed, and it's very difficult to explain it to women. <laughs> I'll tell you, it is. And it's, well, that, that isn't, that it doesn't stop there. It's difficult to explain it to yourself after you've done it. And uh, it's, oh, no, I'm not talking about the little thing where you write your boyfriend's name on your wrist or that kind of thing. I'm talking about a magnificent smoke-breathing, fire-shooting-out-of-the-eyeballs dragon that's two and a half feet long and extends from your second your your second thumb knuckle all the way up to your shoulder blade, you know, with the tail reaching down somewhere near your waist. I mean, that kind of a thing. <laughs> well, no, that's a very, very peculiar thing. And... and uh, and, and one of those things which I rarely hear discussed in polite American society, and yet there is no question about it, but the urge exists. I can, look, I can, there was a guy who had a candy store near the Harding School in, <laughs> where I once festered who had the greatest collection of cockamamies, the greatest collection of, uh, of these little things, you know, that you, you put in the water, Ed, and you put on the back of your hand, and then you take it off and you've got the Grand Canyon there, you know? Uh, in, in three terrible colors. <laughs> it always looks like a bird at high altitude did something on you. And, and, uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the thing, the thing is, is fascinating. And this guy is the only guy I ever knew, seriously, the only guy I ever knew who sold under-the-counter transfers. He had transfers like you wouldn't believe exist, I'll tell you. And the kids were buying them, you know, and they were, they were putting them in places where, where Mama wouldn't see. You know, like like under their kneecap, you know, behind and <laughs> these wild things. And once in a while, a kid would be sitting in school, and he would pull up his knickers and show the chick across the aisle what he had on his knee, which, uh, well, it caused a lot of excitement. I remember it during during uh, slow periods when Miss Shields was reading little uh, Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy, and Josway would be sitting in the back there, and all of a sudden, up would come the up would come the knickers. And Esther Jane Alberry is sitting across the aisle, and all of a sudden there would be this picture, this wild scene, and she would look, and then there would be the, you know, and, and uh, Miss Shields would say, all right, all right, pass the note, give me the note. Well, Joshua wasn't sending any notes. But I'll never forget the day that, that Miss Shields saw him. I shouldn't tell you that it was Joshua. Guess who it was? Miss Shields saw this culprit. Uh, whipping up the, the elastic band on his corduroy knickers to show a rather interesting scenic uh, description of, of, well, it was an, really, it was an anatomical study is what it was. And he was showing this to a girl named Eileen Akers. When Miss Shields saw this strange, suspicious movement, she says, come on up here. She said, what have you got on your pants? And with that, she looked, and that was the end of the scene. Three hours later, Miss Shields was down at the candy store, and I understand that there was a great change of stock there. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, but the urge and the desire to have a tattoo put on your epidermis is, is a very strong thing. It, uh, it, uh, again, uh, I, I'll never forget the time, though, that I came very close to having this awful thing done to me. And how it happened, maybe, maybe this might be a lesson to any of you who might be entertaining such thoughts. This is an educational broadcast, as you know, and uh, we might not educate you in the Vietnamese problem, but there are other things closer to home. And this is exactly what happened. One night, there was a, this was in the Army. Most of these things happen when guys are in a hothouse or a wild or strange situation where there are no, there are really no way, there's no way at all to uh, gain any kind of identity. 
You know what I mean by that? If you're in the army, everybody's got that same suit on, and everybody's got the same look in the eye, and everybody's eating the same rotten French toast, and uh, everybody's having the same fight and the same argument, and they're mad at the same people, and you got the you, you're, the blisters are in the same place on everybody, and so you walk around and you kind of cast around somehow nuttily, insanely for something that says this is me, even if the thing you're saying is this is me and I'm rottener than anybody. You know, you, you just look for something, just something terrible. I I remember one time I, I ran into a, a, a staff sergeant. Funny thing, to the lengths the guys will go to sort of put a tag on themselves to identify themselves from the rest of the herd. I remember a staff sergeant one time that I ran into in, in Fort Dix, as a matter of fact. And uh, this staff sergeant w had the bunk above me. And every night, this staff sergeant, who had been in the Army like three years, and, you know, he, he really did. This guy looked like a canteen. He was just completely GI'd and completely, yes, he was completely indoctrinated. And he looked very sharp, very, very, very official, you know. Every night this guy would come in, and it would be about 8 or, eight or 9 o'clock in the evening, and he would very carefully take down his barracks bag, which was hung at the end of the, the, at the, end of the sack. And it was a double bunk, and he would untie this thing and bring it down, and he would open the bag. And I would be sitting on the bottom bunk, festering away there, doing whatever it is you do, picking your toes or something, and I'm sitting there just looking off into the middle distance, and the sergeant would open up the top of his barracks bag. And then he would reach in and take out a case. Very carefully take this case out. He would open the case up, and believe it or not, it was a leatherette case that was lined with red velvet. And in the case, there was a collection of these mother-of-pearl brushes, mother-of-pearl fingernail files, mother-of-pearl handled fingernail clippers. There was a mother-of-pearl manicure buffer. The whole scene, you know, and it's mother of pearl. This is a, this is the kind of jazz that you get for Christmas, you know, in Circleville, Ohio, from the rector of the Presbyterian Church. And this guy would take this stuff up very carefully, and he would put it all out on his bunk, and he would proceed to manicure his nails with this mother of pearl thing. The guy was nine feet tall. He had stubble all the way down to his ankles, and he would look around defying anybody to make a smart crack. Just He's buffing the nails with his mother-of-pearl nail buffer. Well, of course, I'm watching this scene, and I'm sitting there picking my toes, looking out into the middle distance, and I never once really said anything about it, but it, it made a, a great impression on my head. You know, it was right there. This guy kept doing this. Every night he would take out the mother-of-pearl brush, and he would brush his hair. Then he would take out his mother-of-pearl buffer, and he would buff the things. Then he would take out his mother-of-pearl picker, and he would pick at his fingernails. Then he would clip them. And then he would do all of this stuff with a mother-of-pearl comb, one of those long combs, you know, those mother-of-pearl with the little silver top on it. Oh, it was the most Rococo thing you ever saw. It looked ridiculous in the barracks. And he's doing all this stuff, going away there. This continued for, say, maybe four weeks while I knew this guy. He never said anything other than that. He would snap it shut, clunk, put it back in the bag, tie it up. He would hang it up. He would go back up to the top of his of his bunk. He'd squeak down. He'd lay there. He'd nothing wearing wearing his shorts, and that's all. He'd lay down, and you hear squeak, squeak, squeak. And he would pick up his copy of Spicy Detective and start reading, and that would be the end of it. Never say anything to anybody. He was the most GI looking cat though that I ever seen in my life. And then one Wednesday night, he's not there. Just absolutely not there. His bunk. I figure he's down at the service club. You know, that's it. I don't think anything about it. 
Thursday dawns bright and early. I get up, I run around, I squirt water on me and do all the stuff you do, you know, in the morning, yell and holler, get mad again, all over again, like I've been getting mad for the last three years. I get mad. No, I don't want to do it. Inside I say this, but I'm out doing it. I'm picking the chickens and scrapping and scraping and digging, sweating and peeling, doing all the stuff. And I come back to the barracks after another miserable day spent defiling the human psyche. And I, I come tromping in, and there's his bag still hanging there, and his bunk is clean, nice, hasn't even been slept in. So, you know, came in, went out, that's all. This continued for maybe two days. And Friday afternoon, I'm getting ready to cut out of that place. Boy, I'm going to get out of slam tonight, good. You know, I got the, I got the pass, I'm getting all ready, and all of a sudden, the guy comes down from headquarters. He says, hey, uh, uh, is, uh, where's Sergeant Watanabe? You seen him around? I'd say, no, no, what, 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 you know, what, what, what? He says, well, nothing, nothing. And he goes out, and the next Monday I am back from civilization, and I'm exhausted, broke, sweating, mad, my uniform's torn, I got mud all over me, and I got a bump on my head, you know, after the weekend, and I'm, I'm, I'm mad, it's Monday morning, my head is thumping, and I'm, my eyeballs are red, and the whistles are blowing, and I'm getting ready to go out, and I'm, I'm running through the, the barracks, and in comes this same guy, he says, hey, come here, Mac, and I said, what do you want, what do you want, you know, he's a tech sergeant, what do you want? He says, when's the last time you seen Watanabe? I don't know. What do you mean, Watanabe? I don't know nothing about it. I don't know nothing. He says, when's the last time you seen that crumb? I said, well, uh, how'd you put it that way? Uh, uh, I guess last week, Wednesday or something. Wednesday? He wasn't in? You never saw him? I said, no, no. Will you cut out covering up, private? I said, what do you mean covering up? I don't know the guy. Why, why are you talking about it? even talk to him? Well, ten minutes later, I'm down at HQ. And there's about five guys around yelling at me. Where's this guy? He's saying, I don't know where this guy is. What do you mean? I don't talk to staff sergeants. And it turns out that it seems that old Watanabe one night had just decided he'd had it. And he took off for Nome or someplace. And that was it. Leaving his mother of pearl brushes. <laughs> and they figured somehow I was a confederate. And I had gotten him over the wall or under the guard or something, you see, and I, I didn't know anything about it. So, so uh, about three days after the Inquisition, they've been hitting me on the head with rubber hoses and stuff, in they came. In comes the sergeant. And the sergeant has taken the guy's bag down, see, and he opens up the bag to find out if he can find some kind of an address of a chick or something in there. And he reaches in, and he's pulling the stuff out, and first of all, there's a bottle of scotch, you know, he pulls that out, he says, that's crumb, he pulls the scotch out. Of course, he sticks it for evidence he's taken it, so yeah, yeah. So he takes the scotch, he says, what's this? He opens this thing up, and there are the mother-of-pearl things, you know, there's a mother-of-pearl brush, a mother-of-pearl knuckle duster, there's a mother-of-pearl thing that you scrape out your ears with, it's all there, see? And, and he looks at this thing, and he says, what in the devil? She says, hey, you, Mac, meaning me. See, I'm, I'm trying to hide behind the foot lockers and everything. Hey, you, Mac, come here. Says, what do you mean? She says, what is this? Says, what do you mean, what is this? It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not mine. There's my bag over there. The bee bag is over there. He says, what is this? I said, what do you mean, what is this? He says, what is this thing here? And he's got the, the knuckle duster with the little leather thing, you know, that just, you buff your hands. I says, I think it's a knuckle duster or something you buff your nails with. Buff your nails! Oh, come on, will you? He says, what? Did Watanabe use this? And I says, yeah, I guess so. He used to. Did you see him using this? I says, yeah, he used what? What did he do with it? I says, well, he sat on his bunk and he would go like this, you know. And I said, come here, I'll show you. I'm blushing. He says, oh, yeah, oh, well, okay, that explains it. And he grabs the thing, clunk, he goes like this. He says, boy, wait till the major sees this. 
and he goes clomping out in the general direction of headquarters, and I have no idea what fantastic evidence he had uncovered. All I know is one day his barracks bag disappeared. They rolled up his his they rolled up his mattress. They took his they took his uh, his blankets and his sheets, and that was the last I ever heard of Watanabe. And every day I would see this guy. I would walk past regimental headquarters. I would see this sergeant, and he would look out at me as if I was some kind of a confederate, some kind of a guy that buffed his knuckles with a mother of pearl thing. <laughs> Regimental headquarters. And to this day now, I can't look in these crummy shops along 6th Avenue, you know, where it says fantastic Christmas gift. Paroxylum, mother of pearl imitation, beautiful boudoir set. Containing one brush, one knuckle duster, one thing to clip the hairs in your nose, one thing to grub out the, the beetles out of your ears, one thing to comb your hair with. Comes in simulated leather case with simulated red velvet lining. A beautiful Christmas gift for someone who is really special. <laughs> Again. So you got the scene, see? Well, I'm festering in this in this place for a while, and and this place it doesn't exist anymore. The place I was festering in, though. I don't. I wonder if any of you were ever at a place. Oh boy, was it terrible at one point. A place called Camp Wood. Does it still exist? Camp Wood, right outside of Monmouth. I'll tell you what Camp Wood was in those days. Camp Wood was the place. It was like a human midden heap. It, was, it really was. It was like a human junkyard. All the guys who were in Monmouth, it, you know, Monmouth was this big camp. You know where it is over here by Red Bank. That's a big thing, you know. We used to walk past Monmouth like poor bums must walk past the Waldorf. We would look in at Monmouth like that. was. It was incredible. You know, they had roofs and stuff. And, and, you know, they had roads and everything else. And people wore shoes and stuff. And it didn't rain there or something. We were at Camp Wood. Camp Wood was the place where all the guys that were thrown away were thrown. You know, yeah, well, it was terrible. Mud up to your neck, you know. And you're, uh, mud there, you know, and you're slogging along and people yelling and screaming at each other. Trucks stuck in the middle of the afternoon right out in front of your house. Your house, this rotten tent. And, oh boy, and it was always 150 degrees below zero there. Did you ever hear of Camp Wood? Well, so this began to plunge us into a profound sense of apathy, uh, whatnot, and, and there was a kind of desperation. So one fantastically brittle, cold, disappointing, rotten night, Gasser and me and a guy named Birnbaum are in the bus on our way to Long Branch. Yes, we're, we're going to get out of here and we're going to make the Long Branch scene. And we're sitting there. We each have about $3.20 in our pocket. And we have 17 pounds of desperation. We have 45 pounds of irritation and about 95 pure gold ounces of complete apathy and we're sitting in the bus in the back and there's this little bus a little red bus i don't know whether they still have them but this little red bus with a brown top which it was a wind-up bus it was the first bus i ever saw that didn't have a gas motor and that they wound it up from the back and it's going and we're putting along there and the wind is coming through and it's it's terrible and gasser is sitting next to me and burn bomb is on the other side gasser says you want to make the red bank uso or do you want to go to the Asbury Park USO and, and break another ping pong paddle, paddle? Or how about making Long Branch? I don't know. You know, what do you, what do you got the choice? You got a choice of a ping pong table in Long Branch, a choice of a ping pong table in Red Bank, and a choice of a ping pong table in Little Silver. So here you're sitting there, you know, I don't know. 
Yeah, not Long Branch. All right, Long Branch. So we're going to Long Branch. Well, we arrive at Long Branch, and we are walking around Long Branch. And it is maybe, oh, it's a, it's a, like on a Wednesday, in the middle of the week. Hardly anybody's out of the camp. Hardly anybody's alive. And Jersey is just laying there. You know how the Garden State just lays there in the middle of winter, you know, just laying there. And, and we're walking around Long Branch. Well, now, Long Branch is, is an interesting place. During the winter, Long Branch has all the outward aspects of one of the more interesting funerals that I've ever attended. It's a very strange place. I mean, there's a, there is a note of genuine mourning in the air. I don't understand what it is. That I don't know what they're mourning. Maybe the ocean or something. And so we're walking around. There's a little, there is a little boardwalk, if I remember rightly, there. And there's a boardwalk there, and there's a couple of places where you can get spaghetti and so we're, we're just sort of scrounging around, and there is a sign. And the sign said, Soldiers Welcome. Well, we always, you know, that was a funny thing. We always sort of woke up, Soldiers Welcome, and there was a little light in there, and there was a kind of warmth in there, and we saw about three or four corporals sitting in there. <laughs> and it was Professor Zavarsky, tattooing artist, now in session. Well, Gasser walks past, and in the window of Professor Zavarsky's little establishment there, which looked like one of these places where they make keys here in town, he had a collection of various objets d'art, which you could have hem-stitched on your epidermis at a reasonable price. And time payments could be arranged if you wanted a really extensive mural done for demonstration and for exhibition purposes. Well, we're looking in the window there, and Gasser says, You know... With that bird bomb says, I know, Gasser. And I at the end said, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wasn't quite, you know, I wasn't quite. So Gasser says, you know, look at, look at the chick there with the green tail. He's the one there that says Marie under it. It says you can get any name you want. I knew a chick once. And I'm envisioning this chick he knew somewhere out some places. <laughs> Boy, what a picture, you know, I think about that. With the scales. And, and, and he says, you know, she reminds me. Well, five minutes later, believe it or not, we are sitting in this place, and it is hotter than the hell. Oh, the hinges of hell. We're sitting in this place. And every so often, I could hear coming from behind the screen. They had this little red screen there. You could hear this guy. Ow, ow, hey, for crying out loud, watch it. Man, just one moment, that is a very difficult thing. I must get the tail right now. Watch. With the